I always feel like introductions are just a way to use up my time. <laughs> like, come on, forget that. Like, I want to get on to the things. I want some time for Holy Spirit time at the end. I am still, like, just so happy with what's happened with us tonight as a family because uh, there are just those moments where heaven comes to earth and you just don't want to miss them, and we didn't miss. And I'm just so grateful, you know, because that's why I'm doing, that's why I'm in this, you know, like that's what I'm looking for. And uh, so, it's great. I want to talk to you about tension. And Michael kind of, oh, I thought he was going to preach my sermon, actually. He kind of got going when, in his talk, and I thought, oh, boy, I'm in trouble. He's going to, like, preach my sermon. He's going to use all my points. <laughs> but he didn't. He went off in a different direction. And I breathed the great sigh of relief, so. You know, I, Abraham Lincoln... Famously said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And, of course, that was right at the time in regards to slavery. But there was this article in the New York Times about seven years ago where the author said, that maxim doesn't apply to much else. In general, he says, this is a guy named David Brooks who writes a lot for the New York Times. And I suppose I'm giving myself away in that I read the New York Times. And, well, I can't help it. Anyway, that's a different subject. In, in general, the best people, he says, are contradictory, and the most enduring institutions are too. And he goes on and he says the, the Olympics are actually a great example of a successful institution that incorporates, at the same time, both nationalistic pride and competition along with global friendship. And unity, it appeals, he says, both to our desire for fellowship and our desire for status. To the dreams of community and also supremacy. And, of course, those desires are intention. But the world, he says, is intention too. The world isn't a jigsaw puzzle that fits neatly and logically together. It's a system of clashing waves that can never be fully reconciled. The enduring popularity of the Olympics teach the lesson that if you find yourself caught between two competing impulses, you don't always need to choose between them. You can go for both simultaneously. A single institution can celebrate charitable compassion and military toughness. A three-week festival can be crassly commercial but also strangely moving. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said that the mark of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time. By the way, John Wimber was really good at this. Like, people all the time, they're asking me, you know, like, what was John Wimber like? And I said, the first thing you have to understand about John Wimber was he was a saxophone player. And if you know anything about jazz and saxophone players, like, 
They don't mind a little dissonance, and they're making it up as they go. And there were more than one time John said two contradictory things in the same sermon, and we would be yelling at him. You said the opposite 15 minutes ago. And he would just go like, yeah, I did. Deal with it. So apparently, apparently that's a mark of genius. <laughs> and he says, finally says, it's the mark of any institution that lasts. And, uh, you know, I'm in that sort of legacy phase of life where you, it's all about what legacy are you leaving, what's going to last. And, uh, you know, we live in a time of, of course, great tensions all over the world. And we're experiencing tension in the, in the confines of our churches and in our movement. And I want to speak to the value of holding on to truths and ideas that are in tension. The Bible, of course, is filled with these, and so is life. And I think that as a movement... Our ability to have enduring influence in the 21st century, and I really do believe God brought us into being not for the century that's past, but for the one that's coming. You know, our time is, the, is for the one that's coming. He's made us for that. But it's directly tied to our ability to hold on to the tensions that God has given us. And, you know, like I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. I grew up in Pentecostalism. I got saved hundreds of times. I started speaking in tongues with 11, when I was 11, and we were a little bit worried because I was a late bloomer. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get started sooner. Um, we, went, we understood commitment was going to church three times a week, not two times a month. And so that's where I grew up. But before I met the Vineyard, I couldn't find a movement that actually felt like home. Because every movement required me to choose one value or one perspective over another. It always felt like if I embrace this value, then I have to let go of this one. If I keep my right arm, I got to chop off my left. Was kind of the way the option always felt to me. I wanted to have both solid biblical theology and an active engagement with the Holy Spirit, not one or the other. I wanted to have it all. I wanted to follow the Spirit without throwing away my mind. I wanted to keep reading the New York Times and my Bible and thoughtful things and a good bit of history and still, like, be really good at following the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to be able to do it both. I wanted to be able to participate in exciting things without sacrificing a commitment to authenticity and without having to manipulate people to get it. And for when I found the vineyard, it meant that for the first time I found a movement that didn't make me choose where I could have both. And I was home. It was like I was home. This is where I belong. Like, 
I don't have to choose. I can have a right arm and a left arm. I can be strong in biblical theology and strong in the movement of the Holy Spirit and love them both. In the vineyard, I found a movement that didn't run away from the inherent tensions that are part of any authentic spiritual life. And if you just think about some of our significant book titles, the, the, the things that you know, vineyard people have written over the last 30, 40 years, there are, there's a lot of tension built right into the titles. Power evangelism. Quest for the radical middle. Empowered evangelicals. Back when evangelicals meant something different. And most recently, a book called Both And. Like, that's, that's like, there was, there's tension in all of that. And I think it's one of our greatest legacies as a movement, that we, like, hold on to the, to, the, to the tensions. You know, that's why we don't fit in a box so easy. I don't, I don't know how many of you heard the Vineyard Roots thing that I did for Multiply Vineyard, but it's all about how God has shaped us through a bunch of contradictory things where we don't fit in any box. So if you ask, are we Protestant, well... Yes, and are we Catholic? Well, not exactly, but we do things that Catholics do, you know, and so it, you know, and then so there's just like all these things that we have that kind of really open the door really wide to a bunch of people that wouldn't otherwise be open to what's, what God is doing with us. So first of all, six key tensions in the vineyard movement, okay? Number one, the kingdom of God already and not yet. And this evening is already going late, so I'm going to hurry a bit. You know, Jesus came proclaiming the long-awaited kingdom of God had arrived. The age of the future had invaded the present evil age. And the kingdom and its power are already here, already at work in the world. And if that's true, then that is really good news. Because the kingdom is all about renewing all things and making right everything that's wrong in the world. That's our message. Our message isn't just forgiveness. Forgiveness is just one little tiny piece of that. Our message is God is here to make everything new and to make right everything that's wrong. And who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And with that invasion of the kingdom comes a flood, not a trickle but a flood of God's presence and power and healing. We experienced a flood tonight, and it was glorious. And those things happen here and now. And there's in all the scripture this awareness of the kingdoms here as a present reality, and anything could happen at any moment. At any moment. Colossians 1.13, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Acts 8.12, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And then there are these other scriptures that emphasize, well, the kingdom is here, but not yet fully here. There's still something we're waiting for. We're still praying the prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because it's not. The kingdom in its full promise, which includes the end of war, the end of sorrow, the end of sickness, the end of hatred, the end of death, is not yet here. And so we're still waiting. 
So we read in Acts 14, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, saying to them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or 1 Corinthians 15.50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Or Ephesians 1.13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So there's a sense that our inheritance, our ultimate hope, is not in healing or even the presence of God or miracles or prophecy. Those things are temporary deposits that just say to us the, the real promise is true. And what is the real promise? Resurrection and face-to-face. -face. Huh? And if that doesn't make your skin tingle, like you, you need to think about it a little bit. They're just a small down payment of the full reality. And that's the tension. And the great thing is, that's our belief, that's our theology, that's our basic theology, that's what holds us together. Nobody else has it. And, but there's tension in it all the time. Or salvation, finished and still incomplete. You know, there's this tension built into our own experience in that our salvation is one. When we receive the gospel in faith, we're saved and our salvation is one. And yet at the same time, we must work and run the race so that our salvation can be completed. And I'm, I'm not going to read all the scriptures because I just, I, I want to kind of be conscious a little bit of the time. But you've got them in your notes, don't you? So, all right, that's good enough. You've got them in your notes. Or sanctification. We're justified, but we're developing in holiness. When we receive Christ, we receive a new identity in him and sons and daughters, made holy and righteous. Not through our own work or merit, but by our identification with Christ. But from that moment on, what happens? Transformation, like you heard tonight. Like he starts like helping us work out our salvation. Because we receive the new identity in Christ and it belongs to us, that doesn't mean we believe it yet. It takes sometimes some, some real healing work to get to that place. Our minds must still be renewed, and we still have to learn to live in holiness and righteousness. And there's a place for repentance. You know, sometimes there are some people who want to resolve the tension. They want to say, like, you got everything. You don't ever need to repent again because they're so strong on grace. And I'm thinking, oh, they're cheating themselves out of so much. The first time when the Spirit came on our church, it was January 1985. We were like an independent church, and we had started kind of on the tail end of the Jesus movement. We'd spent a few years looking for where's our family, where do we belong. We knew we needed to be in a family, but we couldn't find our family. And when we found the vineyard, it was like, that's our family. And, 
along the way, I had this experience of like fire from God. And so uh, we had this family meeting because we were a small church. You could still do this. Every year we'd like have a big banquet together and we'd all dress up because the, men, the women made us dress up. And, and um, we'd celebrate the year before and look ahead to the next. And we'd never had sort of really any obvious manifestations of the Spirit in our church. We believed the Holy Spirit worked, but we didn't know how it worked. Like, we knew that, there, that healing was for today, but we couldn't figure out how to get plugged into it. And that night I prayed, Holy Spirit, come for the first time. Yeah, well, let's just say half the church ended up on the floor. I mean, it was utter mayhem. Chairs crashing, people screaming, people shaking. I thought, oh, my, what have we done? We've ruined the church. <laughs> I didn't sleep at all the first night. I went home and read my history books. Like, did this happen to John Wesley? Did this happen to George Whitfield? And I, and I realized, oh, we've been praying for this for years, and we didn't even know it. We were praying for a revival and didn't know it looked like this. But here's the thing. You know what started to happen? Well, first of all, people came to church early, and they sat in the front. Yeah? And they came to church early. They sat in the front, and I'm looking at Dave Frederick. You were there. You know, they was there when this happened. And just like every meeting, the Spirit would come. Sunday meetings, small group meetings. We all started just praying, come Holy Spirit at everything. Like we were addicts then. We were like instant addicts. And we pray, come Holy Spirit. And this is what happened. Power of God would come on people and they'd be shaking and crying or whatever it was that they were doing. And they started repenting of their sins. Like... We'd never preached about repentance. We hadn't called people to repentance. We didn't, you know, but people started repenting of their sins. And I mean repenting of their sins. Sometimes repenting of sins other people had never heard of. Repenting of relationships that had long been broken and forgotten about. I wrote letters to lots of people repenting of the way that we had ended our relationship. There was a wave of repentance that lasted nearly a year. All of us, more than once, I was in front of the church in tears, repenting, and it was glorious. We felt so close to God. And it was like floating. <laughs> I'm having a hard time tonight. It was like floating on a sea of God's mercy. It was so sweet. Like you just wanted to repent of everything. Because you just knew he would take it. It was, it was nothing. It was, there was so much life in it. And that's part of it, and I don't want you to be cheated out of it. 
Like, you can't make it happen. You can't drum it up. It just has to be a gift from God. But when it comes, it is so sweet and so life-giving. And uh, that's part of the tension. Three, power and weakness. We are filled with marks, works of power and filled with weakness and suffering. We know God's presence and his power. We see the miraculous again and again, God's presence among us, and yet at the same time, we experience weakness and suffering. And in the scripture, sharing in the power of Christ is closely linked with sharing in the sufferings of Christ. This never gets to your pocket promise book, but it's in there. 2 Corinthians 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And he goes on about the suffering and the tension they went through where they despaired of their ability to endure. They felt it was beyond what they could take. They felt like they were dying. And yet, God was working. And, of course, 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. There is this mystery that we, when we can embrace the weakness, power is released. When Anita came up here and was weak before you, power was released. Wasn't there? That's the, that's the thing. You know, what you need to understand, I want to tell you, this is just my part of the story. Before the, my encounter with God's power, I went through four and a half years of severe depression, which I didn't even know what it was. You know, uh, I have had, not so very long ago, about uh, 10 years ago, I went through three years where I could not hear God at all. Three years of silence from God. Uh, you know, it was my time in the wilderness. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. Um, it happened to Jesus. He goes to the Jordan River. And he's baptized. And the heavens are parted. And the audible voice of God, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. The heavens are open. The power of God comes on him. And then the very next line is, and the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in the wilderness, the only voice he heard was the voice of the evil one. And the question was, would you be faithful to the word of God? Even then. And, there's, and that's part of the mystery and the tension that we live in. And as a people, that is our life. Yeah. 
we could go around the room and we could all tell a story or more. At one point I said, you know, God, when am I going to get weak and strong again? <laughs> when am I going to be strong again? He said, you're not. Why not? Because then you just start relying on yourself. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. All right, five, mind and spirit, following the spirit and also following the word and reason. Both teachers and prophets are needed. Both apostles and helpers are needed if the church is going to become everything that God wants. So we have the operation of the spirit and the operation of the mind. You know, we've had some wonderful times here as the spirit has worked. None of it's possible without the helpers and the organizers and the administrators and the servers who make it all possible for us to even be here. And it is all the work of God. We're not called to throw away our minds or to ignore study, but simply to make sure that it's governed by the spirit rather than our our own selfish desires. Truth and relevance. We're called to hold in tension our commitment to truth and yet wanting to be relevant to the people who live in our time. Changing the way that we speak, perhaps changing our methods, but never changing the essential message. Now, the benefits of holding on to these tensions one, we get to be faithful to the whole of the scripture. I think that's a big deal, because let me tell you, everything that we know about Jesus, we know through the apostles and the prophets. Without them, we know nothing about Jesus. Jesus didn't write a word himself directly. Everything we know, everything we have about Jesus comes either through the apostles or it comes through the prophets. And all of them, asserted what we are writing came from him. We are not writing our own words. We're writing what came from him. So, like, it's important. You can't separate Jesus from the apostles or the, or the prophets. What they said, Jesus said, because they were speaking for Jesus. They're his authorized messengers. If you reject them, you're rejecting Jesus. If you're rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting the Holy Spirit. Think about that. So we are called to be faithful to the Holy Scripture, and that's a benefit because we can do that. Authenticity to the realities of life and faith. Balanced in approach gives us a theology for both success and failure. We need a theology for the successes and also for the failures. Not everybody we pray for gets healed. Not every prayer that we pray gets Answered, not every Sunday is heaven come down to earth. <laughs> there are some Sundays seem to come straight out of hell. <laughs> we all know about those Sundays. It pushes us towards creativity and adaptability. It enables effective pastoring for everybody and avoids the seduction of elitism. It's an essential part of everybody gets to play. If you let go of any of the tensions, then everybody doesn't get to play. And that's the problem. There's this great desire. We have an internal desire as people 
to eliminate tensions in our life. We don't like tension. We want everything to be simple. Tension's more complicated. Tension is almost always uncomfortable. And so we can be tempted to try to eliminate these tensions. And, of course, very often in history, various segments or individuals in the church have tried to eliminate the tensions. And, of course, that's where most of the heresies come from, from trying to eliminate the tensions. Let me just talk about the consequences of removing the tensions. There are basically two pathways, in particular in regards to the kingdom theology of removing the tension. One is what I call the deistic or cessationist path, sort of the underrealized eschatology, for those of you who like the fancy theological words. You know, it, basically the idea, the kingdom's in the future, not now. And God doesn't heal in, n- anymore. He did that in the past, but he doesn't do that now. It's deistic. God kind of wound up the world and let it go, and he doesn't intervene. It creates doubt and defeatism in the people. In fact, these churches are atheist factories. They're atheist factories because if God doesn't do it now, why should I believe that he ever did it? All right? It reduces the meaning and the significance of salvation to something that doesn't actually make sense to everybody on the planet. It neglects the Holy Spirit. It has a tendency towards legalism, always. It always ends up being legalistic. Because if there's no Holy Spirit, how do you get holy? Well, like you just make rules. Yeah? But legalism kills and makes more atheists. You can't speak to current culture, and you actually can't explain large portions of the Bible. So you have to find some kind of theology that large parts of the Bible don't apply today. That's called dispensationalism. Okay? We are not dispensationalists, just so you know. So take that skull-filled Bible and throw it away. So that's one way. But there's another way to resolve the tension, and that's what we might call the Gnostic or the hyperfaith path, which Pentecostalism is very well acquainted with. And it's been coming up in the church for a thousand, thousands of years, actually. The overrealized eschatology, here's what happens. You raise expectations beyond reality. It's a kind of triumphalism. You can always be healed. If you just have enough faith, you can always be healed. Well, what happens, like, when you do your best, everybody's done, dialed up as much faith as they can do, and, and it doesn't happen. Then what? What do you do with that? You know, where do you go? You have an increased reliance on special faith and knowledge. It becomes more elite. Well, you know, my prayers got answered. How come your prayers didn't get answered? There's a tendency towards exaggeration. So... Here's the thing. You start saying, well, it's all about faith, and it's all about expectations. So they, the, the preachers need to create faith. And so they start exaggerating the stories to create expectation. And then pretty soon, they're making up stories. But when you do that, you're entering into de- deception. You're entering into the world of darkness. You know what happens next? Moral failure. And it's happened in Pentecostalism over and over and over and over and over again. 
And, of course, the, you don't fool your kids. You don't fool your kids. So, interestingly, these churches also become atheist factories. Uh, you alienate everybody who's intellectually gifted or those who are theologically inclined. You have a lot of difficulties in pastoring those who are suffering. The spectacular gets valued over the mundane and steady work of the kingdom. You get a truncated view of spiritual gifts, lots of moral problems, and again, you need to write off large portions of the Bible. <laughs> so I, I just want to say, stay in the tension. Don't panic. Don't worry about the fact that it's uncomfortable. Stay there. It's worth it. Stay in the tension. And I just want to share with an example of how attractive and powerful, because when we can do that, it's really powerful and very attractive when we live it out. So a couple of Januaries ago, I was uh, one of the speakers at the National Leadership Con Conference for the Vineyard in the UK and Ireland, which if you ever get a chance to go to the, their leadership conference, they usually have it in January, it's like really hot stuff, and it's a good excuse to get out of the Midwest in January. Anyway, the, the year that, that year that I was there, uh, they had invited this Presbyterian pastor from Charlottesburg, Charlottesville, Virginia, named Greg, Greg Thompson. He's a Presbyterian man, and, um, you know, very, as you might expect, very intellectual, very theological, but a true believer in Jesus. And a really great leader. And so they had invited him to do the morning Bible teachings. And he's a fantastic Bible preacher, teacher. You know, just like if you want to like just have somebody lay out the scripture in a very engaging and powerful way. He's like, that's, that's, that's their strength. That's, that's their ace in the hole. They're really good at it. So when he returned from the conference, from the Vineyard Conference, the next Sunday sermon at his church, he talked about the Vineyard. He talked about us. And I, somebody put me onto it. They said, you need to hear what he said about us. So I, you know, looked up his church and got the, got the podcast and listened to the sermon. And it was so powerful, I went back through it about ten times and wrote it down so I could get it word for word. And uh, so here's what he said, and I want to finish by reading this to you. This is what this guy said about the vineyard. He said, some months ago, my wife and I were both invited to come and do some Bible teaching for the Vineyard Church in the UK. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Vineyard Church in America and the UK. It's a pretty interesting place. It's a conference that brought together all the men and women who are leading in that particular branch of Jesus Church in the UK and Ireland, and it seemed like a good idea at the time, so we went. I'm so glad we did go. And the reason I'm glad is because what I saw there was a community of Christian men and women leaders of the church who are trying to faithfully embody what I take to be one of the core tensions between the expectation of salvation and the experience of suffering. I actually thought it was incredible. And we're still kind of processing what we saw. On the one hand, the vineyard community, if you know those churches, 
They have a simply overwhelming expectation of the reality of God's presence in our midst. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, in my church, they talk back at me when I say things like that. You know. Yeah, there you go. Somebody knows how to do it. No, I won't do it. Okay. <laughs> I was tempted, but I, uh, I was going to go off on another story, but I, it's uh, beside the point. So that's what he said. Um, they have this simply overwhelming expectation of the reality of God's presence in our midst. And they have this expectation that God is actually present in the world and he's speaking to us and working in us right now. And it infuses their worship. And when the worship starts, it's on. That God is present and we want to experience his life. And it drives their prayer. There were all kinds of people. They were saying, if you're sick or if you're struggling with things that we would love to pray for you, it's the energy behind one of the most massively visionary ministry communities I have ever actually seen. That's saying something. It was a community that at their core was animated by the real expectation of seeing God save their neighbors in the United Kingdom. They just talked about that very freely. And you know, on the other hand, when you talk, when you have dinner with and listen to some of the stories of their lives and the stories of their experiences with their children and the people they serve, it was filled with suffering. It was filled with all kinds of sickness and pain and disappointment. And you heard this constant movement of suffering, either in their own lives or moving into, into suffering cities. In their worship, where they openly talked about sickness in their own bodies and minds. So many people spending their lives suffering alongside the deepest suffering of their communities. And the thing that struck me was... It literally was their instinct to try to figure out where the suffering was worst in their city or their nation and to move there. I had one guy come up to me and say, we're in Northern Ireland and we've been watching the news about the water situation in Flint, Michigan. Do you think we should move our family there? That was just the natural instinct. Somebody else said, we heard about the sex trafficking inundating China, so we decided to move there. And I said, you know Chinese? No. <laughs> Do you know anything about sex trafficking? No. We know God, though, so we're going to go there. It was like this radar for misery. And like we're trying to figure out how to move there. But here's the thing, he said. Zero cynicism. Zero. It was utterly astonishing. That's us. That's what we need to be. Right? 
And it's utterly astonishing. That's what our world is looking for. They don't know it, but that's what they want. So don't let it go. Like, it is the most precious, wonderful thing. Let's take it to the world.